Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our April 2017 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. The National Institute of Mental Health Community has long viewed many DSM descriptive diagnoses as lacking scientific validity. Proposing that better progress towards the understanding and diagnosis of mental illness could be achieved differently, the NIMH published the Research Domain Criteria in 2010. The Research Domain Criteria consists of five neuroscientific domains and their respective constructs and subconstructs that are intended to frame biological research, ranging from molecular biomarkers to neurocircuits and larger systems. Although the criteria were never intended for immediate clinical application, the authors of the present study wondered if they might offer clinical insights. This review article explores the potential applications of those criteria to clinical practice. It suggests that the domains and their constructs can be roughly translated into transdiagnostic clinical psychiatric systems. Specifically, negative valence systems can be envisioned as threat appraisal and response, positive valence systems as drives and effort allocation, systems for social processes become interpersonal and reflective systems, and arousal or regulatory systems can be seen as vegetative systems. In the course of comprehensive psychiatric assessment, These reviewers believe that routine appraisal of these systems might augment but not replace conventional reviews of psychiatric systems, case formulations, diagnostic processes, and treatment planning. Ultimately, advances informed by the research domain criteria might better contribute to measurement-based care and quality process and outcome measures. The atypical antipsychotic ziprazidone has been shown to be effective in depressed individuals who do not respond to an antidepressant. However, its safety in this patient group has not been confirmed. In a study sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers examined potential adverse effects of adjunctive ziprazidone in adults who had major depressive disorder as well as prior non-response to eight weeks of open-label escitalopram. This randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial involved three sites. The authors recruited 139 outpatients with persistent depression who had not responded after eight weeks of escitalopram treatment at 10 to 30 milligrams daily. Subjects received either adjunctive ziprazidone at 20 to 80 milligrams twice daily or a placebo for eight additional weeks. The authors found a modest increase in the corrected QT interval, or QTC, in the ziprazidone group at nearly 9 milliseconds compared to the placebo group just under 2 milliseconds. The difference came close to statistical significance but did not appear to be dose-related. Patients who received ziprazidone had a modest but significantly greater increase in akathisia and weight gain, 3.5 kilograms versus 1 kilogram, compared to placebo. No significant changes in abnormal movements were observed for either treatment group. These findings suggest that ziprazidone augmentation is safe in patients who are not responding adequately to escitalopram. 
Nonetheless, the modest increases in QTC, weight, and akathisia, as well as the prior warnings about QTC prolongation with both suprazidone and escitalopram, suggest that clinicians who prescribe this combination should monitor all these variables regularly. Moreover, doses should ideally be kept within current guidelines and preferably at the lowest effective levels to maximize safety. While psychotropic use has been increasing overall, less is known about its use among older adults. In this month's CME offering, researchers conducted a study drawing on the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey, which represents all office-based medical care in the United States. It specifically focuses on visits by adults 65 years or older to primary care providers and psychiatrists. The authors determined how commonly antidepressants, benzodiazepines, and other anxiolytic or sedative hypnotic agents were used, comparing years 2003 to 2005 with 2010 to 2012. They found that use of all three medication classes grew in visits to primary care providers, but not to psychiatrists. Antidepressants were prescribed at 12.3% of visits, benzodiazepines at 8.7%, and other anxiolytic or sedative hypnotics at 4.7%. The odds of benzodiazepine prescribing grew the most, with an odds ratio of benzodiazepine use of 1.62 in 2010-2012 compared to 2003-2005. to Groups with the most consistent growth across all medication classes were men, non-Hispanic white patients, those with a pain diagnosis, and those with no mental health diagnosis. Given the increasing evidence of potential harms of psychotropic use in older adults, as well as the possibility that these patients might benefit more from a psychosocial intervention, the authors emphasize the need for providers to discuss with their patients the benefits of their current medications and possible alternatives. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Obese individuals have an increased risk of becoming depressed compared to those who are of normal weight. The reverse is also true in that people with depression have an increased risk of becoming obese compared to non-depressed people. One possible reason for this bidirectional relationship is that obesity and mood disorders share underlying pathophysiologic mechanisms. Adipokines, hormones produced by adipose tissue, regulate appetite and metabolism, and some have activity in limbic brain regions, making them potential shared factors between elevated body mass index, or BMI, and mood disorders. If this is the case, we would expect adipokines to influence and be influenced by both mood symptoms and BMI. To test this hypothesis, the authors of this study measured the serum levels of five adipokines, adiponectin, lipocalin-2, resistin, adipsin, and leptin, in 53 early-stage bipolar disorder patients. They found that mood episodes in the six months immediately before the adipokines were measured predicted lower serum levels of adiponectin and adipsin and higher levels of lipocalin-2. BMI did not predict adipokine levels, perhaps reflecting the low obesity rate in this sample. 
The authors also found that lower adiponectin and leptin levels predicted depressive relapse in the 12 months after adipokine measurement and that higher adipsin and leptin levels predicted weight gain. These results suggest that mood episodes contribute to adipokine abnormalities in bipolar disorder and that in turn adipokines influence psychiatric illness course and weight. The authors conclude that adipokines might represent a novel pathophysiologic mechanism linking elevated BMI and mood disorders. Several types of psychotherapy have been found to be effective in depression, but the question remains as to what type best fits the individual patient. A critical review in this month's issue examines the role of staging in selecting psychotherapeutic interventions in depression. Much of the literature is concerned with the average patient, regardless of the time of development of the disorder, its course and characteristics. Yet some data indicate that staging may allow clinicians to apply a psychotherapeutic intervention to specific developmental phases of depressive disorders. Certain psychotherapeutic approaches, such as well-being therapy and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, appear to be uniquely suited for addressing the residual phase of depression. Interpersonal psychotherapy, on the other hand, has been tested mainly in the acute phase. Cognitive behavioral treatment appears to be suitable for all phases, but with chronic or double depression, the cognitive behavioral analysis system of psychotherapy is indicated. Staging may also allow clinicians to assess past and potential resistance to treatment. On the basis of their critical review, the authors contend that treatment options, including psychotherapy, need to be filtered by clinical judgment and patient-specific problems that take into account individual staging classifications of the depressive illness. In this study, the authors conducted a large retrospective investigation of the clinical effectiveness and cognitive impact of electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, for schizophrenia. About 150 patients with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder received around 170 acute treatment courses of ECT. The typical patient was hospitalized, was receiving treatment with antipsychotics, had been referred primarily because of failed pharmacotherapy, and was likely to receive 12 sessions of bilateral ECT. Each patient's chart was reviewed to estimate the clinical global improvement from ECT treatment, and the referring clinician also provided a global estimate of cognitive impairment from ECT. 77% of patients responded to ECT treatment. Clinical and treatment features associated with a lower response rate included anti-epileptic drugs and a referral made because of failed pharmacotherapy. A previous good response to ECT was associated with a higher response rate. Features that were not associated with response to ECT included age, clozapine treatment, and benzodiazepine treatment. Cognitive impairment was observed in 9% of patients, but there were no clinical or demographic factors associated with cognitive impairment. The researchers conclude that ECT appears to be an effective treatment for refractory schizophrenia. In a recent retrospective cohort study from Taiwan, funded with support from Taiwanese institutions, the authors investigated whether leptospirosis is a risk factor for depression. 
The study included patients newly diagnosed with leptospirosis, according to the Taiwan National Health Insurance Research Database, between 2000 and 2010. Patients with an ICD-9 defined prior history of depression were excluded. For each patient with leptospirosis, one control with no history of leptospirosis or depression was selected. Cox proportional hazard regression models were used to analyze the risk of depression according to sex, age, and comorbidities. Patients with leptospirosis had an over one-and-a-half-fold higher risk of depression than did the general population. Compared with the control cohort, risk of depression in the leptospirosis cohort was higher in female patients, patients younger than 49 years, and patients with no comorbidity. In both cohorts, the risk of depression was higher in women than in men, as well as in patients with comorbidities, namely hyperlipidemia, coronary artery disease, stroke, and septicemia. The authors suggest that depression and leptospirosis may share parts of an underlying pathogenesis. Suicide is a leading cause of death for college students in Japan and in many other developed countries. To help shed light on this phenomenon, researchers from Japan conducted a study with funding from the Japanese government to identify suicide risk factors among Japanese college students. In a 23-year serial prevalence study, they examined the prevalence and characteristics of death and suicide among 8 million college students. To identify risk factors, they focused on students' gender and their psychiatric and academic backgrounds. Study findings showed that suicide rates increased throughout the 23 years and that suicide has been the leading cause of death every year since 1996. Suicide accounted for 42% of all deaths occurring in the 23 years. Male students, medicine majors, students in the final year of their program, and students who completed extra years of schooling or took academic leaves of absence were at higher risk for suicide. Among those who committed suicide, only a fraction over 16% had received an official psychiatric diagnosis. 16% had received services through the University Health Center prior to the suicide. The authors conclude that a stronger support system is needed for college students. Areas for improvement could include better advertising of mental health services and student and staff education about suicide risk factors. Mentorship and outreach programs could also be included for students in their final year of classes, for those majoring in medicine, and for those who have taken leaves of absence or failed classes. To increase our understanding of the neural mechanism of depression relapse, the authors of this study investigated alterations in resting state brain activity in patients with recurrent or remitted major depressive disorder. They also compared the fractional amplitude of low-frequency fluctuations with those of healthy controls. The authors received funding support for their work from Chinese institutions. Altered resting state activity was observed across several neural networks in patients with recurrent depression, including the default mode network, salience network, automatic emotion regulation network, and visual network. 
In contrast to previous opinions that only depression trait-related changes are associated with future depressive episodes, these researchers determined that depression state-related alterations are also associated with the number of depressive episodes. Finally, they found that decreased fluctuations in the precuneus and increased fluctuations in the right mid-insula and amygdala became more marked as the number of depressive episodes increased, therefore showing a relationship with the core symptoms of recurrent depression. This research supports the emerging theory that altered default mode network activity supports the role of these brain structures in the pathology of recurrent depression. Findings in the intrinsic neural oscillation have a strong possibility of clinical application. Ketamine is an anesthetic drug that is also recognized as a treatment with antidepressant potential. In this month's clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, the first in a series on the topic, Dr. Andrade discusses ketamine's uses in clinical practice and looks at efficacy outcomes, particularly in patients who are treatment refractory and those who are suicidal. He also outlines ketamine's mechanism of action as an antidepressant and considers possible adverse effects. The full text of this month's column is freely available online, Please visit the April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this month's ASCP Corner, a regular feature contributed by members of the American Society for Clinical Psychopharmacology, Drs. Rubio and Correll discussed the significant problem of untreated psychiatric disorders and substance use disorders. The authors review the association between untreated illness and morbidity and mortality, look at ways to reduce time to treatment, and explore the implications for the healthcare system. The full text of this month's ASCP Corner is freely available online. Please visit the April Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the April issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com or just enter April into the keyword search. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.